So you can see up behind me the messages in, uh, they'll appear at least in a little bit. We don't have to worry about the sound this time since I'm already going. Today's message, you will see where that falls in here in just a minute. There you go. Dangers of legalism. And also you've got or arrogant religion versus genuine Christianity. Probably not going to repeat all of that again, just so you know that's what we're doing this morning, following last week, because we're going through the Bible. So we'll pick up where we left off last week, and we'll go back a little bit so that we can see how this is all connected. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 is where we pick up today. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now this is kind of what we've been doing already. We learned that the mystery that solves everything in this universe is Christ. We've already learned that. That's the solution to life. But these other things, it's interesting that it falls on the heels of what we just discussed because Scripture mandated that we talk about the necessity of baptism as it spells it out in Scripture, connecting it with an analogy to circumcision in that we throw off the flesh in order to follow spiritual things. And the baptism is that same kind of symbol in which we bury our old self and rise anew. So we did talk about that, and our text begins with therefore, so what's the therefore, therefore? Because we just talked about all of that. Now it's fascinating to me that God would have us understand as he landed hard in his own words that baptism is necessary for salvation. And then right on the heels of that, we're going to talk about dangers of legalism. Well, that is very interesting to me because in the history of the Restoration churches, and if you don't know much about that, it would be good to learn. But in the history of the Restoration churches, the whole idea is to restore the church to New Testament Christianity, knowing that we are not perfect. We never will be because we're made up of imperfect people. There's a lot of people that refuse to attend church because of the hypocrites. That's the way they perceive us. They've met people that claim to be Christian, but don't act like it at work or as a neighbor or a classmate or a friend, so they don't go to church. They don't want to attend and be a part of something so hypocritical. But you do understand no church will ever be perfect here on earth because it's made up of us, and none of us are perfect. So you're never going to find a perfect church because it's got people in it. The only way to make it perfect is to get rid of all the people. Well, that is the church, so it just doesn't work. But it's interesting, in the history of the Restoration churches, what, we've, what we tend to do is we do tend to not leave out baptism like a lot of churches do. It, it's, it's discouraging to me when I see masses of people being misled, being told, Would, you need Jesus, you want Jesus, and they, they, they do, And then you say, okay, uh, raise your hand if you want Jesus. Okay, great, now you got him, you're good. 
And they don't get told that they have to live for him. They don't get told they need to be baptized to begin their journey. That's very discouraging to me because it's hard for me as a preacher or even as a chaplain or even just as a Christian to talk to someone I care about that, hey, you haven't done the baptism thing? Why not? Well, they don't think they need to. They're saved. They think they're good. It's not what the Bible teaches. So it's discouraging. However, there's a flip side to that. In the history of the Restoration Churches, what we often do is we land very well on the necessity of baptism, but we land so hard on it that we almost make it, rather than the beginning of your journey, we make it like it's the end. We baptize them, and you're good. You're good. That's, that's the beginning. That's not the end. But have you seen this? So we baptize them, and then they, they're still wanting to grow. They're still wanting to learn. They're still wanting to develop their faith and fi- find out how they can serve. But we don't always follow through. We land so firmly on baptism, and we forget the discipleship needs to continue. So, by the hand of God, Paul was inspired to say, therefore, and then talk to us about legalism in a different way. And I think it's part of his providence that he would have it following on the heels of talking about baptism because there are times when we can even take baptism as necessary as it is and turn it into a legalistic thing. Now, there's other people that have done other things, and I've, it's very intriguing. This has happened actually to me. Just about two weeks ago, I had some very solid believers approach me about a new book. This isn't the new book, but I do want to show you a um, fairly new book. This is uh, not as new as the one they were talking about, but here's a book up behind me. You'll see it on the next slide. The Daniel Plan. Anybody heard of this? Raise your hand. Okay, so... The Daniel Plan is basically, this is a recycled theology that's happened throughout the years. I didn't know anything about it until it just dumped in my lap. When I was a preacher in a church in Houston, we had a Bible study with a group close to this size, and we had a guest come in with an agenda. We never met this person She came in with an agenda. She had not this book, but an older version of the same recycled theology. What it is, is if you'll remember in the book of Daniel, the way the story plays out at the beginning is we've got some, we've got four people, Daniel and uh, three other individuals whose names get changed to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember them? Well, they refuse to eat the king's food because, you know, it's sacrificed to idols. You know, it's it's um, used in idol worship, and they, they don't, they're not going to do that. They know that that would displease God. So they instead asked to have their own diet. And after all is said and done, and their own diet consisted of only vegetables, after all is said and done, they, they looked better and they were smarter than everybody else. They were having the king's food. And they ended up being very highly ranked individuals in the kingdom, but these, this particular thing was to illustrate that you, you do what, God, what pleases God and he blesses you. But many people read this and they turn it into books like this. And in fact, if you'll notice, there's 
three different doctors here who two are uh, medical doctors and one is uh, not, but they're all, they all have their doctor's degrees, and they wrote this. So it sounds credible. And their argument is that if you want to be God's people, you will do the Daniel diet, which is only vegetables. Has anybody ever heard anything like this from anybody? Okay, well, it happened in that church in Houston when this lady walked in. This was uh, somewhere between 1995 and 1999. She walked in to our Bible study, and she began to tell us about this, not this book, but the, the theology. You cannot eat meat or have any type. She's more like a, a vegan than a vegetarian. You cannot have anything connected to meat. It's, it's bad for the planet. It's bad for the body, and it's bad for your soul. Biblically, you are, should not be eating anything but vegetables. And she was adamant. So I want to tell you what happened next. I said, well, then, how do you deal with this? Here's the scripture in the NIV. I'll read it to you. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. That's pretty in your face. That's Romans chapter 14, verse 2. You might want to put that in your back pocket in case somebody gives you this theology and is trying to tell you, you can't be a Christian unless you only eat vegetables. Well, my Bible says something very different, and so does yours. Now, understand this context in which this verse appears is actually saying, don't look down on others. You're not supposed to judge others because they don't eat meat, and you're not supposed to judge others because they do. Whichever your position is, that's great. You have that position. But don't be saying your other, your other brother or sister is not a Christian because they're not doing what you do. Don't be judgmental. That's the whole idea. Back to our text when we began in... Are we going to get back to the text? No, we're not. I want to give you something else. I want to give you the reference. First of all, this is a very reputable source. Here's the reference. It's the National Library of Medicine, August 4th. It's not 1014, it's 2014. PubMed.gov, if you want to look it up, you look up this title, Vegetarian Diet, Seventh-day Adventist, and Risk of Cardiovascular Mortality, a Systematic Review, and Meta-Analysis. If that is too much, um, just know this is a thorough study where they research to find out the benefits to your body of a vegetarian diet. Look at what, and, and it, I don't, does this fascinate you at all that it mentions Seventh-day Adventists? What's, why? Because they are huge advocates for vegetarian or veganism um, for health. Not just for spirituality, but for health. They use this whole idea of going to Daniel, and they use the creation account as well. But look at what this says. This is a direct quote. You'll see it up behind me. Data from observational studies indicates that there is modest cardiovascular benefit, but no clear reduction in overall mortality associated with a vegetarian diet. 
This evidence of benefit is driven mainly by studies in Seventh-day Adventism, whereas the effect of vegetarian diet in other cohorts remains unproven. So in other words, Seventh-day Adventists in their own research make a claim that it's healthier to be a, a vegan or a vegetarian when the evidence is not conclusive. I didn't even know that that was a, that the thing is, this is actually driven by a particular religion more than it is by the scientific evidence. So I wanted you to see that. I don't know if you've got Seventh-day Adventist friends. I do. In fact, there are probably Seventh-day Adventist friends who listen to my messages online. And I love them. And I, I know that a lot of people say, well, that's a cult. And it's certainly got some telltale signs of that. But I just wanted to bring to your attention uh, that the idea that vegetarianism is not only not biblical, it's not scientific. But we'll move on. Our text, going back to where we began, I want to read this again to you from Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The main thing, to keep the main thing, <laughs> the main thing is Christ must be the focus. We have to keep Christ as the number one thing. The other stuff is somewhat incidental, especially when it comes to things that are not issues of salvation. Now, I want you to notice there's a weird little thing here that you don't see all, all over the New Testament. The main thing we keep being told about being judgmental or not is to not be judgmental. But this says something different. It says, don't let other people judge you on these matters. Well, that's, that's a twist. Interesting. Because most of us understand that, you know, we want to stand firm and let people judge us, whatever. But these matter. Why does it matter, these types of things? Because people are making them issues of salvation. You're not a Christian if you don't celebrate Purim. You're not a Christian if you don't follow the Sabbath. Isn't that interesting? In the providence of God, not only do we have following on the heels of baptism is necessary, don't be legalistic, we also have an understanding as we look at this, making veganism or vegetarianism an, a matter of salvation is also a problem. Don't let people judge you on that. Why? Why? Or, or, these, or the, even the changing seasons or the celebrations thereof? Because these are a shadow of things to come. These are just, this is, all of this leads to heaven. All of these things are little pieces, but we don't need to make them an issue of salvation. The main thing is Christ. Okay. I hope you're tracking with me because God has a little bit more for us. We'll read on. Pick up with the next verse, verse 18. Oh, wait, wait. Uh, uh, JC's on top of things, and I'm not. I want to give you a passage. 
let's answer the question. He just gave you Galatians 5, 7 and, uh, through 9. I want to give you that because in Galatians, we're given uh, the answer to why. Why is this so important to not let people judge us on these things? So Galatians 5, 7 through 9 says, you, are, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And this, is, this follows on the heels of the subject of circumcision, where people are trying to make that an issue of salvation. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? What you're supposed to imagine is running in a race, and somebody prevents you from running your best. Somebody got in your way. Somebody elbowed you. Somebody fell down in front of you. Somebody slowed you down somehow, some way. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. The idea is when you put a little bit of yeast in, when you're making bread, when you put a little bit of yeast in, it spreads through all of it. It permeates it all. Becomes a part of it, and then it rises. And this is an analogy that's throughout Scripture you see in many different ways, but in this particular passage, it's talking about how if you let a little bit in of this legalism, where they were trying to impose circumcision in as a regulation for salvation, if you let a little bit in, it'll permeate the whole batch. And so, and this is, and it'll grow. So, if you let veganism or making baptism a legalistic issue instead of just necessary, we have to do this. It's not the end, it's the beginning. If, if you make anything that God didn't make a legalistic issue, then the whole church could become legalistic. And they exist. There's a very unfortunate part of our history as a restoration church, we had a few divisions. And these divisions, uh, in fact, the, f- the very first division happened in a tragic event in Waco, Texas. You see, in, in fact, the first two major divisions that are documented historically are documented in court records. And see, we're part of a church that um, got, on, got fired up because this country had so much religious freedom. People came here for religious freedom. So churches like this sprung up where you just follow the Bible. No creeds of man, no headquarters, no denomination, just follow the Bible. And that's what was happening across this country. It was, it's a wonderful history to be a part of. But in Waco, Texas, many years ago, some people in the church wanted... They wanted a, I can't remember if it was an organ or a piano, but they wanted an instrument in the church. And I think it was a piano. And half the church wanted the piano, the other half didn't want the piano. Well, half the church that wanted the piano decided, well, we've got, we can pull together and get the funds and buy one. So they did. They bought a piano and it was going to be delivered and they let the rest of the church know, well, we did it, we ordered it and it's going to be here. And the other half of the church felt like a piano in, in the church. Well, if you read the New Testament, you only see, you know, uh, this idea of like new songs and stuff in Revelation, but you don't see instruments mentioned 
in New Testament practice. It's not mentioned. So then it must be evil. Well, so that half the church, before the piano was delivered in that church in Waco, Texas, they put a lock, a padlock on the door of the church so the piano could not enter the building. And then they had, a, they had this split and they had to go to court, which the Bible speaks on that. We're not supposed to do this. They had to go to court to decide who owns the church, who gets to decide whether the piano goes in or the piano doesn't. So they had to go to court. First record of these restoration churches splitting, and that's when what became known as the Non-Instrumental Church of Christ was born. And if you've been to very many non-instrumental churches of Christ, and there are non-instrumental church of Christ people who listen to my messages online, friends that I love, I believe will be in heaven with me, but believe that we would be evil because we have instruments in our building. The second split happened. This, well, it's not the second split, but it's the second major event that divided the Restoration churches happened at uh, what, what is now known as uh, Texas Christian University. Have you ever heard of that? They play some pretty good football, by the way. But anyway... And Texas Christian University was started by Restoration Churches. In fact, if you do your history, you'll find that there's several prominent colleges that were. But at the time, the father had handed off control to his two sons, and they were going to do a baccalaureate service type of a thing. And the sons decided, hey, since we're doing this now, we're going to bring in a band. And the father and... uh, Others advise them, don't do that. That's going gonna, gonna to split the church. Well, they did it anyway. And uh, as the service began and instruments were played, a whole bunch of people got up and walked out. And then the order was given by, I believe, one of the sons, play on to the person that was playing the piano. And she played on. And that is the second time uh, we have a major event where the church was split. And it was over opinions. We split over opinions. It's embarrassing. That's what happened. So Galatians very clearly tells us we've got to be careful. The reason why God doesn't want us... So it's okay if you stand up and you say, I believe in Jesus, and a whole bunch of people around you don't. It's okay if you stand your ground and they judge you. He's talking about something else here. That in the church, we are not supposed to let legalism creep in. Because if it creeps in, it permeates the whole church. And when it permeates the whole church, you end up with what we have today in most non-instrumental churches of Christ where you're, you don't feel very welcome there. Most of them are shrinking, have shrunk to um, horribly embarrassing numbers. Uh, many of them have closed their doors, but they don't care because they are so legalistic. You got to believe their way or else, and that's it. They, uh, they do a lot of foolish things, and they don't reach many people that are lost. In fact, they're losing many families 
many of their own family members, the, the Church of Christ is dying. The non-instrumental Church of Christ is a, a dying church. And legalism has permeated it. We don't want to let that happen here. We don't want to let it happen in any of our churches because it takes away from the focus, which is Christ. So we'll move on to the next part now. Colossians chapter 2, verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, that's Jesus, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Now I want you to note this uh, little note here. You see that I left up there. It says it's D. It means, or about, this is a better translation actually, or about the things he has seen. Not necessarily visions, but the things he has seen. But the main thing is, somebody who is puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. There are a lot of churches that focus on the sensual. That's the main thing. I don't know about you, but like we sing a song today. Sometimes we sing a song that's kind of new to us. We sang a song today, Confidence. I love that song, and I love the way we did it. I, I think it's great, and it, it felt good to sing it. I love most of our songs that we sing. It feels good, but it's not about how I feel. It's about how God feels. We're worshiping him, not me, not you. And so you might sing a song sometime. It doesn't make you feel good. Maybe it doesn't feel like an old hymn to you. Does it feel good to God? Does he appreciate what we're doing as we're worshiping him? That should be the focus. But it's not always the focus, is it? There are people that will not attend a church because they just sing songs that there's not their style. There's, there's people that will leave a church because the church is bringing in too many new songs. When heaven is described as a place where there will be lots of new songs, would it be uncomfortable there too? So the main thing here with that particular part is we're not supposed to be caught up in the sensual. In churches, it should feel good. If it feels good to God, it should feel good to us. But the focus isn't on how we feel. If your Christianity is about your feelings, all about you feeling better, every time I go to church, I got to feel good, you got the wrong focus. There are some times when you should leave church not feeling great because you were convicted and you've got to change some things. You, you should feel like when you leave, I got to get in my car, I need to make some phone calls and apologize, straighten some things out with some people, I did some things wrong. If we're doing our job and we're simply highlighting Scripture, we should be convicted by the Spirit of God in here. And sometimes we should be embarrassed by our behavior. It's not all always about feeling good. I guarantee you, you're not going to find a picture of Jesus hanging on the cross, smiling. That didn't feel good. 
And he did that for us, and he set an example for us. Sometimes we have to sacrifice through life, and it doesn't feel good. But it's for the sake of God's glory and honor and for loving others. So let's look at the whole verse here. Let no one disqualify you. So, so somebody kept you from running at a good pace. Now he's saying, don't let anyone disqualify you, take you out completely. Does the devil want you to be taken out of the race? Of course. Is he sometimes effective in taking people out of the race? Have you known people that were once very close to God and very dedicated in their service to him and now are no longer? The devil has done something there that he's very skilled at doing. He's, he's so sneaky. He's so conniving. He's so clever. And he's effective. And this scripture is telling us, let no one disqualify you. Insisting on asceticism. We'll talk about that in a minute. And worship of angels. Really? People, people do that? People, of course. Um, Stephanie and I have been to the Precious Moments Chapel in uh, Carthage. It's really cool. And uh, I think Sam Butcher is the one that did all of that. And those Precious Moment things, it's all a bunch of angels. That's really cool. And there's people that collect them. That's still cool. But there are people that focus on angels too much. That's a big deal to them. It's a thing. Don't worship angels. Going on in detail about visions, we talked about that, and puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head. We've got to keep Christ number one. Okay, so let's move on in our text. Colossians chapter 2. Verse 20 and following. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. Now I want to take you back to Last week's, I said we would do this so that we can connect the dots here. First, we'll look at verse, uh, I think it's verse 17, is that right? No, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Remember, I said last week that there was, in our text, we were going to see the connection he talks about according to the elemental spirits of the world. So these evil spirits of the world, these spirits that are not of God, we're, we're supposed to make sure that we don't get caught up in those kinds of things. Things that are contrary to Christ. Notice in our text we just read, this is also Christ died. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits, you're supposed to have cast off those worldly things, the flesh. When you were buried in Christ, you, were, you rose anew. You put that in your past. So don't cling to your past. Okay, now I'll look at another section uh, from last week. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through, the faith in, through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So you were... You 
buried your old self. Don't dig that stuff back up. Why would he say that? Why would he have to tell us this? Is it possible that we, even though we commit to living for Christ, we are baptized, we bury our old self, we rise anew, is it possible that we might still be clinging to some of those things associated with death? Yes, we will. And there will be times here in the church where, let's just say, some Sunday morning, let's just say somebody that we read about all, all over the news, let's say a transgendered person comes in here, and we can't even tell. We don't know. It's a man or a woman. I don't know. And the transgender comes in here, uh, and this transgender person comes in, and here's the gospel message, and I believe this, this is so powerful, it can convict. And this person might decide to make a commitment to Christ. If our church is doing its job, this could happen, right? So if it happens, here's a person that might have even had surgeries to mutilate their flesh, their body, and now they're going to try to bury their old self and start anew. And immediately, this person could have other problems. They might have a drug addiction. They might have other issues. They might have a foul mouth. They might be into porn, all this stuff. But now they realize they need to follow Christ, and you're supposed to bury your old self. So we baptize them. We bury them. They rise up anew. Do they instantly have no temptations for any of those things they came in with? No, they're still there. And they've got to be taught. And they might try to cling on to their transgenderism or their foul mouth or their pornography or their whatever it is. They might try to cling to it, reach back and grab it, and we have to teach them, no, you gave yourself to Christ. You need to surrender these behaviors and live a life that's pleasing to Him. Which, <laughs> sometimes we think that they've got to change all that before they come in here. They just, they just won't fit. You know. No. They need Christ, and we, we need to give them Christ and help them through. There's a possibility that we might have someone who's beginning their Christian journey and they may not have some, uh, some things figured out that are kind of glaring at us. So, we're supposed to not cling to those things. Those things that the, the elemental spirits deceive us with, we need to let go of those things and follow Christ. That's the main thing. All right, now we'll look at verse 23, our last verse of the text today. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I said we would talk about asceticism, so I'll give you Webster's definition, and it's, it's fair. So here it is. The practice of strict self-denial as a measure of personal and especially spiritual discipline. Church history records people doing things like this as far as asceticism goes, denying themselves any pleasures whatsoever in order to be spiritual. One particular guy, I can't remember who it was in the, in the church history, it, he actually shackled himself to a log to not eat, do nothing but fast and pray, shackled himself to a log. He asked to be chained to the log. 
to suffer. He had to make himself suffer in order to be close to God. And he refused to even remove the slugs that crawled between his shackles and his skin. And there are people that think this, that's what Christianity is. Yes, you're going to suffer as Christians, and you're called to suffer, but you're not called to make yourself suffer. You don't purposely go out of your way to make yourself suffer because it makes you more spiritual. No, it's just something that's going to happen as a Christian. When you sacrifice because you love others and you love God, sometimes you're going to suffer. You stand up for what's right. Sometimes you're going to suffer. But you don't purposely go out of the way to make yourself miserable just because you're a Christian. And the sick thing is, there are churches that think they're supposed to make their people miserable in order for them all to be spiritual. So, they have an appearance of wisdom. They, they seem to be a spiritual thing, but they have no benefit. There's no value. It doesn't really stop you from indulging in the flesh. People who do these things are still going to be tempted to sin. They should be focused on Christ, not on some kind of a weird, made-up self-torture. Okay, so here's the application we find in Scripture that we've unfolded today in our journey through the prison epistles. First, don't be judgmental or legalistic. It's not healthy. It's not healthy for you. It's not healthy, healthy for the church and it certainly will not help in our evangelism. Second, don't let others be judgmental toward you when it comes to matters of faith. Don't. Because then it'll permeate through the whole church. And let me, uh, let me tag this in here just so that you understand what this looks like practically, because sometimes we don't, we don't connect this. Like, that, that doesn't really hit us. That's not affecting us. Eh, maybe. There, there are some of us who have Harry Potter books in our homes, and there are some of us who will judge those people as, well, that's, that's not Christian. Christians don't do that. You know, you see how we are? Okay. So we can look at the principles of why or why not you should be doing this or that, but don't make that an issue of salvation. People are climbing in their spiritual journey on a different ladder than you are. And in some ways, they might be higher than you in their spiritual journey. In some ways, they might be lesser than you in their spiritual journey. Don't, we don't need to go around nitpicking each other. We help each other. We love each other. We encourage each other along the way to make better choices. But we don't judge each other just because somebody is, hasn't made the same decision that we have. I told you this, and I'll tell you again, about Trey, who was sitting in the front in a Bible study. And as we're studying, I use him as an example. I said, and Trey... Well, they, he told me that they don't watch TV in their home. Good for him. That's a decision I haven't made. I watch TV in my home. I don't watch it much, but I watch it. And when I talked to Trey, when he told me we don't watch TV, I said, well, I watch the news and I watch, you know, football. But, and there's this one show I like to watch. But other than that, I really don't watch. He said, I, I wasn't asking for excuses. All he said was, 
We don't watch TV. And quickly I was giving him excuses as to why I do. And I thought, and then when he said, I wasn't asking for excuses, I felt very convicted. Like, why am I coming up with excuses? So I used him as an example. Trey and his family, they don't watch TV. Not all of us have made that decision. We don't look at him and think, are you judging me because I watch TV? That's exactly what I was doing when I was justifying myself. What we do is we lift up people like that. So it's good for Trey. And Trey's going, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. And I'm going, no, it's okay. It's good. Good for you. Your family doesn't watch TV, and I haven't made that decision. So that good for you. You, you are at a different level when it comes to those kinds of decisions. So thank you for such a good example. It's convicting to me. And he's like, stop, don't. I said, it's okay, Trey. It's good to build you up. After it was over, he met with me privately and said, you want to know why we don't watch TV in my home? Sure. He goes, because I have an anger problem and I, I kicked it and I put a hole in it. It was a tube TV. And he said, we don't have a TV anymore. I, I have an anger problem. Oh, okay. So it wasn't a spiritual decision on his part, but uh, I got to tell you, there are people that make decisions that we don't. There's people, there's people that maybe are in the non-instrumental Church of Christ. They don't want instruments for worship. And they choose not to do that because they don't see it in the New Testament and they think that they just can't please the Lord, including instruments. As long as they're not judging the rest of us that we're all going to hell because we are using instruments and they're just making their own spiritual decision, good for them. Great. That's their, it's their call. And if somebody else has chosen not to watch movies or not to listen to the radio or not to watch TV or not to read certain books or whatever, good for them. Let's learn from them. As long as it's not an anger problem that's led to them not watching TV or whatever. Let's learn from spiritual decisions other people make, and let's not judge others because they've not made the decisions we've made. I hope you can see that out of our text. And then the third thing is, let God's word be the final authority. Because if we do that then the Lord is pleased. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word that guides us through life. You make things so practical. You teach us. You pull us closer to you and you give us insight in how we're supposed to interact with one another, not be judgmental, and, and not even let other people judge, be judgmental toward us on matters of faith. God, help us as we journey through this life because we struggle, each of us in our own ways. Help us to continue to be gracious with each other. May we love others and love you in a way that is pleasing to you. And may it be magnetic. May others come to know you as a direct result. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.